Welcome to Sojourner Truth and happy Earth Day. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, as we culminate Earth Week, we're bringing you a special broadcast on the environment, part three of Hoodwinked in the Hot House, Would Build Back Better Burn Billions? This is the third panel of a series that builds on the momentum created by the most recent report, Hoodwinked in the Hot House, third edition, Resist False Solutions to Climate Change. As part of President Biden's infrastructure plan, federal and state governments are providing billions of dollars in so-named climate subsidies, policy incentives and tax breaks to dangerous and dirty energy industries. These include biomass and waste incinerators, nuclear power, and carbon capture and storage infrastructure for fossil fuel facilities. As a result, frontline communities will be facing increased pollution burdens and toxic threats. Today's panel highlights emergent threats of climate fault solutions across the United States, federal and state policy landscapes. Panelists are community campaigners, community leaders, researchers, and frontline organizations who are fighting the myths associated with carbon capture and storage, nuclear, hydrogen, biofuels, and waste incineration. Along with debunking what they see as false climate crisis solutions, they also highlight inspiring stories of success led by environmental justice communities. They point out that to effectively move money away from dangerous policy directions and towards real climate justice solutions, coalition building is needed amongst national green groups, labor unions, climate philanthropy, and policy makers who should work with frontline communities in opposing these schemes. This panel was preceded by Hoodwinked in the Hot House Part 1, examining false corporate schemes being advanced through the Paris Agreement, and by Hoodwinked in the Hot House Part 2, Frontline Voices of Indigenous Resistance Beyond Climate Fault Solutions. If you have missed Parts 1 and 2, you can find them on the Sojourner Truth link on SoundCloud. We live in a global world, we're all interrelated, so on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. A Russian military official has announced a second phase of what Russians call their special military operation in Ukraine. The official said the goal is to establish full control over the eastern industrial heartland of Donbass in southern Ukraine. He said that will provide a land corridor linking Russia and Crimea which Russia annexed from Ukraine in 2014. Russian President Putin announced troops have taken control of the strategic southern port city of Mariupol. Russia said it would not attempt to capture a sprawling steel facility where an estimated 
2,000 Ukrainian troops and hundreds of civilians were holding out, but would lock down the plant. More from Stuart Smith in Moscow reporting under Russian press restrictions. The defense minister told the president 2,000 fighters still remained, but that the rest of Mariupol had been captured. The president said that can be considered a success. To those who still remained at the factory, he said Russia guarantees their lives and decent treatment in accordance with international law if they come out. Ukraine's top negotiators have requested an urgent meeting with the Russian delegation at the site in Mariupol to try to save the lives of everyone there. Stuart Smith, Moscow. New satellite images show what appear to be mass graves near Mariupol. Local Ukrainian officials accused Russia of burying up to 9,000 Ukrainian civilians there in an effort to conceal the slaughter taking place in the siege of the port city. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has thanked President Biden for the latest tranche of U.S. military aid. Biden announced $800 million more in weaponry, $500 million more in economic assistance. In a tweet, Zelensky said the help is needed today more than ever and brings Ukraine closer to restoring peace. House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy told other Republican lawmakers four days after the January 6th Capitol insurrection that he would urge then-President Donald Trump to resign. That's according to an audio recording revealed by the New York Times. The Times reports the audio is a recording of a January 10th conversation among House Republican leaders in which they discussed the Democratic effort to impeach Trump. Republican Liz Cheney can be heard questioning McCarthy about a potential Trump resignation. She is now saying she is not the source of the leaked audio. Is there any chance, are you hearing that he might resign? Is there any reason to think that might happen? I've had a few discussions. My gut tells me no. Um, I'm seriously thanking for having that conversation with him tonight. And the only discussion I would have with him is that I think this will pass, and it would be my recommendation we should be done. After the Times published its initial story describing the conversation, McCarthy released a statement calling it totally false and wrong. His office had no immediate response after the Times released the audio confirming its initial reporting. It didn't take long after the insurrection for McCarthy to cozy up to Trump. He famously traveled to visit Trump at his Mar-a-Lago golf club in Florida, three weeks after the insurrection. A hearing begins today over whether Georgia's right-wing Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene can be barred from running for re-election over her role in the insurrection. A judge ruled last week the trial could proceed. A group of voters is challenging her re-election big, arguing her participation in the insurrection makes her ineligible to run for Congress under the 14th Amendment. The suit alleges Greene aided and engaged in an insurrection to obstruct the peaceful transfer of power. It was filed last month with the Georgia Secretary of State's office by five voters who live in Green's congressional district. As required by law, the Secretary of State asked an administrative law judge to hold a hearing on the complaint. That hearing is set for today. Green is expected to appear.
Israeli police in full riot gear stormed the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound today after renewed clashes with Palestinians carrying out Friday prayers during Ramadan. Palestinians threw rocks at the police. Palestinian medics say at least 31 Palestinians were wounded, including 14 who were hospitalized. Video footage showed the police firing at a group of journalists holding cameras and loudly identifying themselves as members of the press. At least three Palestinian reporters were wounded by rubber-coated steel bullets. Thousands rallied in Gaza to protest Israeli actions at the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound. Similar clashes last year in Jerusalem led to a deadly war between Israel and Gaza. A federal judge has temporarily blocked a new Republican-backed law in Kentucky that effectively eliminated abortions in the state. The two remaining abortion clinics in Kentucky went to court seeking to overturn the legislation and asking the law be blocked while the case is litigated. I'm Eileen Alfandari for Pacifica Radio. Those were our news headlines. We will now go to Hoodwinked in the Hot House, Part 3, Would Bill Back Better Burn Billions? Tom, thank you for joining us. I wondered if you would share some opening reflections on the relevance of hoodwinked and and this examination of corporate false solutions today. From our indigenous environmental network and standing with the analysis from the South, we say that the, the result of this UN Paris Agreement is that it's a trade agreement. It's nothing more. It's not a climate agreement. It's a trade agreement. It promises to privatize, to commodify, and to sell forested lands as carbon offsets proving a financial laundering mechanism for rich developed countries and the corporations, the polluting corporations of the North to launder their carbon pollution on the backs of the global South and in the North on the backs of our indigenous black and people of color and low income communities. But it's surprising that a lot of the general society, the public in the North, Canada, United States and civil society throughout the world haven't put that together. That's why it was very important for us to come together and to produce the third version of this hoodwinked in the hothouse publication with the goal to demystify carbon markets, carbon pricing, geoengineering technologies, extreme energy developments, such as mega hydro dams, for an example, nuclear energy. And there's a lot of other forms of energy that's being proposed that is not clean and it's destructive. We've seen a dangerous slide since our participation, since I've been going into the hallways of these UN climate meetings. It's a slide towards a lawless capitalism. I like to say it isn't, but it's where this free market ideology, neoliberalism is privatizing every aspect of our lives and virtually there's no public oversight to this, no accountability of their profiteering. That's how serious this issue is and why we found as indigenous peoples that we need to wake up the world. Somehow the world has lost that relationship to the sacredness of Mother Earth and Father Sky and that we feel that Mother Earth is not for sale. The sky is not for sale. So part of the politics around climate change that we're seeing here domestically in the United States, including our sisters to have to deal with the same politics in Canada and throughout the world is a politics of desperation. And uh, we see that 
not only within the environmental and climate movements, the non-governmental organizations, but also politicians and the foundations and funders. And it's just that in a lot of this work, we have used the word disaster capitalism tied with the short-sightedness of carbon and techno-fundamentalism that's driving this corporate false promises. Even the flooding of big money from philanthropists such as Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, and Elon Musk, who are pushing false solutions, especially within geoengineering technologies such as carbon capture and storage and solar radiation management. Our concern, for an example, with these funders, they sourced up to, to a tune of $100 million, some of the major NGOs that are fighting us when we speak the truth on how these false solutions do not cut admissions at the source that we need. So we ask you to download, to get a copy of Hoodwinked, and you'll see a whole package of exposures of this climate investment schemes. And it is like Ananda said, it's designed to reward the profiteers who are the very folks that are causing the problem and the pollution. And for any of our folks that want to participate in these systems, I ask the question, how do you reconcile participation in these false solutions that commodify and privatizes Mother Earth and nature? We've started to work on one area way back in the early 2000s on reducing emissions from deforestation and degradation. It was a carbon offset initiative that still is continuing called RED. For an example, Chevron or Shell who pollute in California, they can offset their pollution locally by going carbon neutral, buying carbon credits to protect the trees in the Amazon. Carbon sponges as scams that really allow the polluters to continue to pollute in the north, creating toxic hotspots. That's wrong. So now we're seeing a rebranding of the organizing that we did with many different organizations throughout the world to expose like RED as being a scam. They rebranded it. Now it's called Nature-Based Solutions. Nature-Based Solutions. And my other uh, final comment on these is that we have to really be educated on everything that's happening as people from the U.S., people from different countries, civil society that still is having a hard time getting into the COP. That's a big concern as well. We're very cautious on Green New Deal governmental initiatives as being part of green economy scams and using terms such as regenerative agriculture. Check these out where they're using soil now and the carbon in the soil. But whose money is that? That money comes from the polluters, again, as an offset for their pollution. And this worldview, how the world uses machines to make meaning of life, where Mother Earth is objectified like the objectification of women and treated like a machine made of parts that can be replaced, redesigned, or engineered. That's really where we're at in this world, where DNA is coded to be edited and deleted at the whims of the corporations. 
where our bodies and engines and food is fuel, where the world is not seen as the complex, interdependent, beautiful and sacred relations. Mitakie Owase, we are all related. The publication is very timely. The world is being promised that these false solutions addressing climate change will eradicate poverty and world hunger, empower our women, address environmental justice issues, and provide funding for just transition and help Indigenous peoples obtain land rights and guarantee our right to free prior informed consent. This is not happening. This is a lie. It's a collection of conflicts, contradictions, and lies. Mother Earth is the source of life which needs to be protected. We only have one Mother Earth. Let's protect her. Thank you very much. Jackie Patterson of the Chisholm Legacy Project. Many of you know her formerly as the director of the NAACP's Environmental and Climate Justice Program. Can you share your reflections on this moment and why we need to really be wary of these false solutions and even tackle them? Speaking of kind of language and framing and analysis, one thing I really appreciated about the Hoodwink and the Hot House is the way it uncovers how people are using language in ways to, to shroud what the actual goal is. And as you say, working with frontline communities, it's been a constant battle to keep in front of and help to dismantle the false narratives that are being put across with these false solutions. I mean, things like nature-based solutions. Who doesn't want nature-based solutions, you know? And so it sounds so awesome. You know, it, it sounds like you're talking about biomimicry. It sounds like you're talking about leaning into the natural systems of our ecosystem. As Tom said, you look under the hood and you see what's actually being done there. And so, especially with the number of the communities with whom I'm working, who are new to the climate space, they feel like they're excited because they're doing work on climate or environmental justice in a different way. And then people come in and they're using this kind of language and they think, this is what I'm doing too. I'm doing this environmental thing. And they're talking about nature-based solutions. Then you have to kind of run behind like the grim reaper and say, you know, actually that's not, you know, and there's this constant, constant need to vigilantly help to unpack false narratives and this, this false notion of even what equity is in the context of solutions. Thanks, Jackie. Next, I'll introduce my friend Ariel. Ariel Derange, the director of Indigenous Climate Action. Thank you so much for having me as a part of this panel discussion. As Tom so eloquently put, they have really inundated the spaces in which state or colonial leaders are really trying to drive climate solutions. So I'm really glad that this conversation is finally coming to a forefront that is actually has like momentum built around it, that we're now seeing this really broad sector of intersectional movements from, you know, you know, women's groups to Black uh, liberation groups to the Via Campesinas to the Pacific Islanders to all of the different struggles that have been rooted in justice for our people and justice comes in so many different forms, whether it's like land justice for reparations, whether it's land justice for communities, for getting our land back in North America or Turtle Island, whether it's the movements of fighting against the deeply, deeply entrenched racial discrimination and racism and white supremacy that exists throughout the Americas. We are at this forefront where the climate justice has intersected with everything. 
And when we talk about justice, we really need to look at what a climate justice framework is. So we were asked, and it kind of didn't happen, but I'm going to read the paragraph because I think this is an important context. So this is in the introduction to Hoodwinked in the Hot House. A climate justice framework does not reduce the climate crisis to a puzzle simply focused on counting carbon. Grassroots, community-led movements around the world look across the economy at the exploitation of land, labor and living systems, at the erosion of seed, soil, story and spirit, and seek to lift, lift up real solutions around us every day from indigenous, indigenous traditional knowledge, food sovereignty, decommodification of land, healthcare and housing, to abolishing the military industrial complex seeking to extract the last dredge of fossil fuel from Mother Earth. From just transition and energy democracy where democratized, decentralized, detoxified and decarbonized energy powers, powers our lives to transformative justice where we respond to the violence and trauma with compassion and healing not policing, punishment, and prisons. I think that when we talk about that and you read that definition of what a climate justice framework looks like, and again, this is in the introduction to the Hoodwinked in the Hot House report, you start to understand that the solutions that are being put forward by colonial governments, whether in the US or so-called Canada or in any of the colonial countries, which is basically all of them at this point, let's be real, um, that these systems are not holding those at the values. We heard on the historical context that when we talked about, uh, you know, early agreements for climate, for addressing the climate crisis in the Kyoto Accord, for example, it reframed. We talked about all of this stuff at the Rio summit in 1992, about the fact that we need to be talking about seeds and soil and people and humanity and, you know, coming back into relationship with each other and with the land. And that was distorted and skewed into the, having a conversation that relegated the climate crisis to an economic discussion. And what we're seeing now being driven across the Americas and across the world false solutions that uphold and support a, an economy and a system that does little to actually reduce the emissions while safeguarding economic systems, including big corporations and big governments that are in bed with these corporations to continue to railroad communities, marginalized folks, uh, indigenous peoples, black communities, and all of the other folks that have been, you know, disempowered and disenfranchised from these systems from the very beginning. So far, you know, there's a lot of these conversations. And as Tom said, we're seeing this repackaging. We're seeing this, this appropriation, really, of Indigenous ideologies that we have been fighting for and advocating for within these structures to push back against these economic structures to say that we need to be listening to nature. We've talked about natural law. We've talked about our relationships with the with Mother Earth. And those have been, again, once again, appropriated, repackaged, and recommodified as nature-based solutions, carbon offsets, blue carbon, all of these different structures that do nothing but continue to commodify the natural world and allow big polluters to keep polluting and allow the those that are in power to stay in power and do very little to address the justice frameworks that I just spoke about at the beginning. We need to be looking at ways to recenter ourselves, our relationships, 
and separate ourselves from this economic structure and remove it out of the conversation. If we are going to address the climate crisis, we cannot do it from an economic perspective. And one of the things that Indigenous Climate Action has been doing over the last couple of years is we've really been looking at how we can begin to unpack what decolonizing climate policy can look like. And so we recently released a report that looked at Canadian climate policy and it's called Decolonizing Climate Policy in Canada. And it investigated the shortcomings and problems associated with Can Canadian climate policy while at the same time supporting and developing indigenous led climate policy climate policies by and for Indigenous people that will raise up and empower Indigenous-led solutions. And this is so important because we have to be looking at deconstructing and the undoing of current systems to create space for our own independent processes and plans that are built around this holistic, interconnected, balanced approach that's based on relationship reciprocity and respect for each other in the natural world. And so within that context, like within Canada, you know, we're often looked at as this, this, you know, sort of nice country um, by a lot of folks. But the reality is, is these same solutions that are being driven forward that we hear about by, you know, the big ugly country, the United USA, these are, we're, we're doing the same thing here in Canada, except we package it really, really nicely. With Indigenous peoples and the Indigenous peoples within Canada, the government is parading things around like uh, Indigenous protected and conservation areas as a way to broach both truth and reconciliation by allowing Indigenous peoples to have the, the, um, the ability to manage conservation zones. But those conservation zones are being underwritten by big corporations, Shell, Exxon, Suncor, Syncor, some of the biggest operators in the tar sands are underwriting these conservation offset programs that they're then going to be using once we have developed a mitigation strategy that they're hoping for that can be utilized not just within Canada as a way to offset their emissions, but within the international systems that are being negotiated at the UN level. And so we have to be very careful about when colonial governments give us or hand us a so-called olive branch as marginalized communities, as disenfranchised communities where the systems were never created for us or by us or with us, that when they hand these opportunities for us, what is the hidden agenda? We have to constantly be thinking about what is the hidden agenda behind government suddenly just very like, oh, we want you to manage your lands and territories because it benefits them and it creates the optics that they're doing something. But at the end of the day, the colonial governments still determine which areas become conservation offsets. They would never give the conservation offsets to the Wet'suwet'en clans that have been fighting for the protection of their homelands, even though it is a rich biodiverse region that deserves just as much conservation and protection as other areas that have been listed in this country, but because it has already been, um, you know, titled to a corporation for exploitation, it does not get it. So they're only giving what they feel is going to benefit them, the corporations, and the entire system of false solutions to be pushed forward that continues to railroad and marginalize our communities. So we have to move forward and support each other. We have to support each other in this movement for liberation from false solutions and liberation from capitalism, liberation from white supremacy. Last but not least, I'd love to introduce uh, our sister and comrade Monica, Monica de Oro, 
of the Micronesia Climate Change Alliance. Uh, Hi, everybody. I'm so honored to be here. I come from Micronesia and 2 million square miles of homelands and seas for under a million people. So it's not really well known. I live in the islands of the Marianas, which is made up of um, Guam and the Commonwealth of the Northern Marianas. And most of the islands are affiliated through compact agreements with the United States, or in my case of our of the islands of the Marianas as territories or modern day colonies, because our experiences with climate change are so dire. So people from the Pacific are on the front lines of climate change. We are at risk of experiencing more storms and the intensity of the storms have been increasingly Hard. I'm on the island of Saipan right now. Just a few years ago, they were hit by the biggest storm in over 100 years. Within 100 years, there's the absolute threat that these lands may be gone forever. And of course, the ocean is so important. It's the, the source of life for us in the Pacific. All water is a source of life. The people in the Pacific contribute very little to this crisis. We don't uh, emit very much carbons. We don't use very much. And it's really unfortunate that our voices aren't very, very much listened to or heard at these international talks. And especially my people, because we're territories of the United States, we aren't invited to even regional talks in the Pacific about our uh, mitigation plans or adaptation plans to climate change, and definitely not in any sort of way that uh, would bring justice to my communities. I was just in a Pacific Climate Justice Summit a month ago, and there was panels speaking about the benefits of nature-based solutions. And I'm not too sure about the framework of what happens out here in the Pacific and if there's a disconnect between communities based on language barriers and just distance, but nature-based solutions are very much being touted as climate solutions in the Pacific. Most places that do have nature-based solution programs or Red Plus programs are in places where the indigenous communities are very much oppressed. These are places like Papua New Guinea and the Solomon Islands and Vanuatu and Fiji, where there is, there is definitely a language barrier between them and the United Nations partners or other, um, other partners where these programs are being implemented. So there's definitely a need in the Pacific to connect to more people like the Indigenous Environmental Network one of the biggest things that faced my community, especially throughout Micronesia, is just our relationship and our historical issues regarding colonization and militarization of our lands. Because we are between Asia and between the U.S., we are often used as pawns between the world superpowers. And here you see some photos of nuclear bomb testings in the Marshall Islands. And then, of course, World War II ravaged and completely damaged most of our homelands throughout the islands. And war is still being heavily pushed as economic solutions in our communities. I come from Guam and, and a third of our island is used for military use. And right now the U.S. is creating firing ranges over our single sole source of drinking water. And these firing ranges will undoubtedly lead to lead contamination of this water. And these are over sacred sites. They're demolishing 
ancestral sites that were used for thousands of years by my ancestors without any free informed and prior consent. And for the United Nations to not recognize the emissions of the military entities of, across the world is a great travesty to this climate justice movement. War is really fueling the warming of our world. It's really important to hold these entities accountable. The U.S. military is the single largest consumer of fossil fuels. All the fossil, all the fossil fuels that are being pushed through the pipelines that are being resisted throughout Turtle Island are coming to my islands so that they could be um, fueling jet fuels and bombing uh, pristine islands just north of here, in, in Fernando Mendoniza here. There's so all of these things are interconnected. And it's really important that we do what we can to bring peace to our communities, real peace and real genuine security through doing the things of principled practice, through realizing the just transition and through being and uplifting the indigenous people around the world. By the government's not seeing that at the United Nations Conference of Parties is really disheartening to me as a young organizer. In the belly of the beast, how are we going to fight some of these policy pathways? The, through these kind of surface solutions, we're going to continue to have the same problems because we're not getting to the to the root causes, which we know are kind of these systems of exploitation, domination, extraction, and so forth. And so one is is pointing that out, but but two is actually demonstrating the changes that we need to see in the world and really uplifting that this is the that these are the solutions. So starting to not waiting for policies, pushing for the policies, but at the same time actually beginning to implement the changes we need to see in the world. We're already seeing you know, local food movements. We're already seeing people starting to treasure the land, treasure and, and, and having a new relationship with the earth and the earth systems and really recognizing that in, in how we how we interact with the earth and how we interact with each other, the rules of the land, like the, the rules of our ecosystem, the not just the rules, but practices and principles of our of our natural ecosystems are really modeling for us how how we need to be. So if we start to to do that and start to 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 advance this narrative around biomimicry and so forth, then we start to really model the change that we need to see in the world. And so as we see folks who are growing their own food, folks who are who are generating their own energy, folks who are living in deep relationship with the land. And as we lift up those narratives and show that this is the sustainable, this is the true solutions to the not only the climate crisis, but to, to the other crises that we talk about with the syndemic. And as we think about our economy and having a, a living economy where all are valued, then we start to see the types of true systems change that we need. So first is first is you know pointing out the error of the of their ways, pointing out the, the true path, but then Again, that whole kind of adage of show, don't tell. I think that the reality is, is that I've heard over and over and over again from a lot of the sort of traditional environmental movement folks and organizations and movements that getting something is better than getting nothing mm -hmm. as a justification for their, their moving and, and backing and supporting false solutions or solutions that further undermine or uh, subjugate, marginalize, disempower people of color. And I think that it's easy for them to, to justify that because they come from a very privileged place. They come from a place where their organizations are founded on 
on ideologies of, of white environmentalism, uh, that the environment is something to be protected for the elite. It is it like the environmental movement really sort of stems from the national parks paradigm of protecting nature for the enjoyment of the elite. And so when we talk about the climate crisis, I really feel like a lot of these old ENGOs, like old school white ENGOs, come from that very centered point that the climate needs to be saved for the elite, that it is a place for those that are contributing to society under a colonial white supremacist framework are the, the society that the world is being saved for. So of course, it's easy to justify the continuation of you know, extractivism in indigenous communities, of the exploitation of labor, of uh, the continuation of status quo within a capitalist, a predatory capitalist society that we live in. And so some of the tactics and strategies are is not just focusing on interrupting the colonial state. Like we have to also interrupt people that have been our allies because in many cases in the past decade, our allies have utilized our stories um, through tokenistic um, and appropriating processes that have done little to actually build up our communities to build a movement of people of color. Rather, they're utilizing our stories to help justify their power as the people that are making the decisions. And I've seen this very well, where a lot of well-intentioned, well-intentioned, I don't wanna say these people are malicious in their intent, well-intentioned white NGOs are sucking up a lot of the airspace in these places, and they have positioned themselves over the years as the experts, that their modalities and methodologies for collecting data, my birds are very excited about this conversation, um, uh, um, have, are the way to move forward. And that we have to accept that that's what's going to move forward. When in reality, we also have, we're, we're on double duty as people of color. We're constantly not just pushing back colonial systems. We also have to push back against our allies to see how these very structures are also marginalizing and continuing to press, oppress us. And that means stepping in. When they say, oh, we're looking for a new indigenous like researcher to join our team, say, why? Why are you joining that? You know, we're hiring all these people of color to help us build our programs. Is that really your job? Is that really your place? Because you know what would be better? Don't take that resource and that grant to hire a person of color. Give that to a people of color organization, you know, black indigenous people of color organization to let them do it for themselves. That is actually upholding self-determination, sovereignty, free prior and informed consent, not sucking up all the air and asking us to join their movement. So when we talk about this, we absolutely have to be calling out, and this is an uncomfortable call conversation to call out our allies, but we aren't gonna win the movement without them either. We have to have them on our side. And if that means we need to have hard, uncomfortable conversations with our allies and you need to be willing to get uncomfortable you need to be willing to feel a little bit like agitated and you have to ask yourself why because if we continue to allow these organizations to push false solutions it continues to undermine our strength as indigenous black people of color movements to push forward our agendas for self-determined community-oriented grassroots-led solutions that support justice frameworks for us to be free from the clutches of colonial capitalist 
systems that have oppressed our people for generations. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We're going to take a short station break. When we return, we'll hear more from Hoodwink in the Hot House Part 3 with Build Back Better Burn Billions.
Okay, welcome back to Sojourner Truth. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Check out our website at sotrueradio.org. If you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us there. We're also nationwide and internationally on SoundCloud. And today we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in the state of Mississippi. That is Mississippi. And internationally, we would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners throughout the Caribbean region. By the way, our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. We're now going to return to the last speaker of part three of Hoodwinked in the Hot House. Monica, you've had some dealings with folks advancing blue carbon offsets and other things. Do you have any thoughts on what it is? One conversation that has been a recurring conversation in the climate justice space is, is what to do about the Bezos fund. You know, he donated $10 billion to um, different environmental fronts, and most of them were big greens who don't share our, our um, principled practices when it comes to the climate crisis. And it's such an, an interesting space to be a part of climate justice and re- where we really want to, like, how where we really want to question how did, how was it that Bezos was able to increase his wealth during a pandemic? How was it that we have these systems that these rich elite people are feeling good about themselves for creating the problem and then just throwing money to make it seem like they're doing something about it? Um, And it's really important that we continue to ask those questions, put pressure on these um, allies or not to invest in green grassroots frontline organizing and to really build power and take power away from those, those structures that have um, harmed our communities and continuously destroy our environment. And it's so simple, but it's so difficult given all the different political um, divisions in our communities today across, uh, across the states, across and across the world. It's really th- that marketing scheme that Tom and both Ariel and Jackie has spoken to is really important to unravel and understand. And again, that's why I think Hood- Hoodwinked is such a perfect resource for anyone coming into this climate justice movement to really grasp the gravity of ways in which we need to be moving forward and ways in which we need to be resisting these, these false solutions. And yeah, out here in the Pacific, the blue carbon credits and and ocean policies are really being pushed um, in the States and also here. And it's really, um, there's not enough being done to counter that. And I just am grateful for this space for really um, pushing me and encouraging me to look further into those things happening here in my own, um, in my own backyard. Even some of the best uh, formulated strategies that try to be holistic when they lack the participation, the democratic participation, the vision and leadership of frontline communities, they they lack you know a, a really clear guidance on how to avoid all the pitfalls of you know market-based mechanisms, neoliberal policies, and oftentimes like drawdown. Or you know when I first uh, looked at the drawdown framework, uh, it was very clearly. I mean, though it tried to be holistic, it it's fundamental problem was that it, it put on the same footing problematic solutions like nuclear power and mega hydro alongside real, you know, uh, you know, sort of agrarian, small community led solutions. Uh, and, and we can't have that. They can't be on the same footing. When we talk about climate justice, we really talk about flipping the script, because unless we take a radical departure from the status quo, 
recognize that we we can't afford to build back better. We can't afford to go going back to the status quo and recreating what was. We need to depart from these systems of exploitation and destruction and start forging new ones. Well, in that conversation, I mean, I, it's one of the things that's clear is that we need to center the voices of frontline communities, but that itself is a difficult proposition. I, I don't know, um, alongside pushing hard on these political allies, um, you know, do our panelists, Aki, uh, do you have any thoughts on where, because you're someone who I find is, is very compelling and very soft and gentle, but very, you know, clear ways and and what are some of have been some of your experiences of working in some of these worlds and trying to shift uh funding towards the front lines and uh what 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 gets us to change the perspectives and worldviews of some of our big green allies if you will now one of the things that we talk about is a need to make sure that that we're able to caucus within we can push for with these organizations when they start to feel threatened, when BIPOC folks start coming together, frontline folks start coming together, and they they subtly try to to, to push back against that is making sure that we push forward on that and make and make sure that that happens because we not only build power together, but we also support each other against that kind of chafing of constantly being chafed against the system that that's not that that doesn't share a similar analysis and view. So that's one thing. Um, two is when I'm talk when when I've been talking to the, some of these folks often it's really um, it's really kind of getting people to be clear on 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 outcomes and strategy um, like because a lot of times people will say that this is what they want and then having to really break it down and say okay yeah you know we we want maybe similar things but the path to get there. Here's where here's where it's here's where we differ, and that's what some of the conversations I've been having, even with, yeah, with all of these with some of these um, major money movers, it's been really around that, and and having to really point out that it's really only through grassroots action and grassroots leadership that what you're claiming you want is actually going to happen. So either you're not you don't actually want what you're saying you want. Or um, yeah, or, or, yeah. So that's that's really uh, the challenge that I'm finding that I'm constantly having to put forward is to say like if you really actually are saying that you want to have the society that actually you know is, is turning back the tide of climate change, then this is the only way that it's going to get there. What you're saying is actually not going to work. <laughs> and here here's what is going to work. And here are the examples of where it actually already has worked. And so that's what I find myself kind of constantly doing. This is why often when you see the different things that I write, it always ends with like a whole long list of the people that are already doing what we need to have done. Um, whether it's the, yeah, it's because to have, to, and it goes back to what I said in the very beginning, that it's all about kind of showing that we already have the solutions, that the solutions are already in motion. And what we need is for other people to really just get behind and get on board. And so that's, that's the kind of what I'm constantly hammering home, which, ha you know, has mixed success, but, but um, that's, uh, that's the, the method, as you say, just kind of continue to put it in front of people. Monica, do you have any closing thoughts, reflections? I definitely do want to, again, call and uplift the struggles of my people to demilitarize and decolonize. I'm a uh, part of the Chamorro Nation out here in the Marianas, and we have been a U.S. territory since 1898 and post-World War II, um, even more so. And I think really just driving home that 
that piece that we really need to leading up to COP, we really do need to ensure that um, internationally we hold military institutions to the protocols and that we should not we should stop exempting the military, especially the US military, who's the largest consumer of fossil fuels, largest single largest, um, uh, single largest producer of pollutants on the planet, as well as the protector of the fossil fuel industry, and just drive that fact home. Um, and also just wanted, it's a full moon, it's it's a full moon now, and I think it's also really important to, for everyone to reattune themselves back out to nature, to really take time and space to take care of themselves. It's a really distressing time in our world today and any moments that you can find to be mindful um, to be present and to be conscious of our interconnectedness is also a big part of how we need to be showing up in this climate movement and how we need to be um, accountable to our own personal health because really this movement is so demanding of us, mind, body, spirit, and it's so important that we do the work that we need to do to take care of ourselves and, and our communities um, and be holistic in our approach of self-care and our approach of really trying to build new systems and a new way of being. Jackie, would you like to share some closing reflections? Sure, thank you. Yes, after Monyeka's beautiful sharing, this is going to seem hyper-tactical, but um, in the U.S., I feel like we need to get money out of politics. The uh, undue influence of the fossil fuel industry and these other industries is just, you know, egregiously um, damaging here. And and we really need all movements to get behind getting money out of politics if we really want to have forward motion from a legislative standpoint. Thanks. Jackie. I'm gonna I'm gonna echo Jackie on that. It's not even just out of politics. We need to get all of our public dollars, all of our personal dollars out of the fossil fuel industry. There is a growing divestment movement, and we need that divestment movement also to be challenged to have it being community led. Because if we talk divestment, what is reinvestment? And if our communities, initiatives and solutions are not valued or held up at an equal platform and um, in an equal position, then we're going to see reinvestments being led by the same corporations uh, that have led the, the, the tragedy of the climate crisis that we're in. We'll just see Exxon building massive solar farms. And so we have to talk about divestment, divestment of oil and gas out of our politics, divestment out of our dollars into the bank systems, into insurance, into our pension funds, divestment across the board. But that divestment um, needs to be led by community. And so bottom line, we need to be talking about decolonizing structures. We need to be building up our communities, building our power back in our communities to be seen, to be validated by ourselves. We don't need white validation. We need validation by ourselves because years of colonization has made it so hard that when we see the validation from our own communities, we don't always hear it. But we need to empower our communities that we say, I see you, you are powerful, you are beautiful. You have the solutions right there. And then when we empower our communities, when we talk about divestment and reinvestment, all those beautiful solutions, and I've seen it in the chat, black women are already building solutions, femmes are building solutions, indigenous people are building solutions. Like these solutions are everywhere. It's about valuing them, holding them up, 
deeply investing in them and changing the narrative away from this economic-based structure of addressing the climate crisis. That will require us to decolonize our minds, decolonize our processes and move forward together, unified in the struggle to address the climate crisis, not from a carbon accounting way, but from a holistic approach that brings us all, that asks us all to do what Onyeka said, put our feet in the soil, be connected, be together as one. And that's gonna take a lot of undoing, but I really believe we can do it and we can't take those shortcuts. We can't just say something is better than nothing. We have to demand better and we have to do it now. Thank you so much, everyone. That was really, really so enlightening and um, powerful. If you can just put your hands over your heart so we can all, like Ariel said, try to be one. Take a nice deep breath. And I'm gonna lead us out with the chant called Unuhit, which is just a reminder and a prayer that we are all one and we are all connected. Unuhit, Zanitanu, Itasi, Atau, Zanilangi. We are one with the earth, with the sky, with the sun, with the sea, we are one. We're out of time. Today's show edited by Sojourner Truth assistant producer Alicia Vargas. We thank her for her work and we'd also like to thank today's board up. Sojourner Truth will be back on the air on Tuesday. Wishing each and every one of you a very happy Earth Day. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Stay well and safe. And I hope you get to do something really nice this weekend. Thank you for listening.